most designers are adventurous, innovative. You know, they're risk takers. They create new things. They're comfortable with that. You know, when I hear the words massive change, I get excited. Most people, when they hear the words massive change, they hold onto their wallet and back out of the room. They don't want massive change. <laughs> they, they want massive stay the same. If we're really going to design change, we have to understand how powerful norms are. Hi, I'm Juliana Prozerpio, and welcome to Desired, the podcast from Echoes, designed to help you be bold, stay fresh, and become a better design and innovation leader. Hopefully, we can help you not only predict the future, but create it through the lenses of design and innovation. This month, we speak with Bruce Mao, a designer whose love of thorny problems led him to create a methodology for whole system transformation. Across 30 years of design innovation, he's collaborated with leading organizations, heads of state, and renowned artists. Bruce has also impacted the world through the books he has written and co-authored on design. And most recently, M24, a book about how to change just about everything. The book lays out 24 principles for designing massive change in our lives and work. So join us in this interview as we explore case studies and principles from his incredible book that comprehensively explores how to shift from human-centered design to what Bruce calls life-centered design. Bruce, thank you so much for coming. You share in your bio that you have been an entrepreneur since the age of nine, right? And you have a long history of working with institutions as a visiting professor. The more you teach, the more you learn. Thank you so much for coming. It is our pleasure to learn with you today. What would you say to other people who want to inspire others to learn design? Well, I think that it's an absolutely extraordinary life of adventure. I mean, if you think about it, we get paid to do what we don't know how to do. You know, almost all the problems that I am tasked with, I have no idea how to solve them. I get paid to solve problems that we don't know how to solve. In my experience, my own, you know, my own life, It's been just an absolutely extraordinary adventure that takes turns and twists that I could never have imagined. I mean, I, you know, I did a project to design the future of Mecca. If you had told me as a young man you know, or as a child that you know, I, I would be designing Mecca, I would have said, you know, that, you know you're cracked. That's not going to happen. But it did happen. And, and I think that is the beauty of a life of design. That's amazing. I do agree with you. I think one of the, the most beautiful things that you're always doing things that you never thought about. So you're always putting yourself in this uncomfortable zone of having to learn everything from scratch again. And it's also beautiful because you can influence the future, as you were saying, right? You just launched a new book. And I also saw a video from you that you said, a book sequences narratives. So your new book is something that the world desperately needs, for sure. It details your 24 principles of massive change. And I love your, your introduction. I'd like to read this excerpt for our audience. Practically, everything we do today needs change. And I agree with that. One of your chapters is about design the new norm. We can't detach ourselves from our context. I'll read an excerpt and I would love to know more about your perspective about designing a new normal, especially in the times that we are living. We are driven by a powerful need to conform. We learn by watching others. The four, designing new norms is the objective of massive change design. 
pioneers and innovators often alienate the very people they hope to transform. I would love to know more from you about this perspective of designing a new normal, especially in the times that we're living. Most designers, you know, most of us are inspired by the singular object that is a special case. We want to make something really extraordinary, something beautiful, uh, a kind of exceptional. And the world needs those. You know, we, we love those things. I, I obsess over those things. But more than that, the world needs new ways of living, new ways of everyday life, new ways of thinking that become commonplace. That's a totally different challenge. It's a, it's a much more, I think, more complex and difficult challenge to really make more intelligent ways of life become the normal, average, everyday way of living. When you do that, we change the remit design of design. We change the responsibility of design and what our real objective is. And one of the things that, that we discovered when we began to research this, most innovators, most designers, alienate the people they would like to change. So they have the effect of actually scaring them. Most designers are adventurous, innovative. You know, they're risk takers. They create new things. They're comfortable with that. You know, when I hear the words massive change, I get excited. Most people, when they hear the words massive change, they hold onto their wallet and back out of the room. They don't want massive change. <laughs> they, they want massive stay the same. And so if, you're, if we're really going to design change, we have to understand how powerful norms are, how the existing norms hold things in place. And if we're going to change the existing norms, what it will take to actually do that. Not a kind of shiny special case, but really a way of introducing these new ideas in a way that becomes kind of natural and second nature. So when you, when you say about changing these, these norms and also that usually designers alienate uh, the people that they are working with, that they want to create change, what do you think that is the new way of designing things that will, that will actually empower us to create change, inviting the people who are part of, of these contexts that you are trying to interfere, let's say? Well, I think, uh, for one, we have to think about it as a collective enterprise and not a kind of spaceship that lands, <laughs> that brings down the kind of special vision, but really um, something that we build together, that we collaborate with the people who are going to be changed. You know, change is exciting until it happens to you. The more that we can help people make their change and accomplish their new world and build their new possibility that really belongs to them and is their vision informed by new possibilities, the more that we will succeed and advance and really change the way that we behave. You know, one of the, one of the uh, people that we... Uh, discovered in our research is a man named Paul Dolan. Uh, and he developed a, a, a kind of acronym that's for me really very useful and, and really brilliant. Um, and it's called SNAP. And it's salience, norms, affects, and primes. And salience means I need to capture your attention. I have to, I have to, you have to think about changing something if you're going to change it. Norms are the kind of you know, invisible structures that hold us in place. Mostly we learn by looking at other people. 
you, you know, think about your behavior. Most of your behavior, you've seen other people do it, and you and you conduct yourself to fit in into that world. And so, norms are very powerful in terms of holding things in place. Affects are emotions, and you have to realize that mostly we don't change things intellectually. We don't make decisions based on a spreadsheet. We make decisions based on our heart. We we love something. And we will do it no matter, you know, no matter what. I mean, we use the, the example of buying a house. Almost no one buys a house off a spreadsheet. They see a house, they fall in love with it, and they spend more than they intended. Um, and that kind of emotional effect is actually how things really get decided. So we need to understand affects. And finally, primes. Primes are messages, little kind of messages in the environment that help you do the right thing. So if you think about, you know, a little sign on the freeway that says buckle up, right? It's a prime at the moment that you're driving. If I tell you it, you know, as you're going to bed, it's not relevant. If I tell you as you're entering the freeway, it's oh yeah. And so primes are really important to designers. Because we can put the message into the world at just the right moment and really help people, you know, embrace possibility where the, otherwise they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't be, uh, be able to. Does that make sense? Yes, a lot. I think it's interesting. I think you, you wrote about Snap in your book. I think when you were talking about designing yeah. the new norm, I found it very interesting when you were talking about the norms because you're basically changing and shifting. You're designing, redesigning and co-creating, collaborating through design culture in a way and also behaviors, right? I think that the what you were talking about, it's also about designing this, actually nudging new behaviors so that can, people can be informed, but also influenced in a way, but they can respond. Of course, they can always say no, right? It's not like we are alienating people in a way. Um, I think it's the other way around when you are bringing people together for this collaboration. But I wanted to ask you, because you also talk about one of the case studies that I really loved in your book um, was the, and I was wild, was the Guatemala project that you mentioned in your yeah. book. I wanted to see if, if you actually applied the SNAP or if you could see the SNAP in the Guatemala, because there is explanation of the meaning, of course, of Guatemala that I found it. And I didn't know. I was, wow, yeah. I, I'd never thought about it. And then when you changed for Guatemala, I thought it was very clever. But I wanted to see your perspective, maybe from this nap, if there is any correlation to it or not. We worked with an extraordinary group of folks in, in Guatemala uh, to do that project. You know, essentially what they explained when they first contacted me was they had had 36 years of civil war. And so most of their people had grown up, lived their whole lives under wartime. And they said that, um, explained that their people under those conditions had lost the ability to dream. So when they asked their children what they wanted to be when they grew up, they didn't have an answer. They didn't imagine growing up. And so the whole idea of a culture that didn't dream seemed so tragic to me. I mean, I, I, I so took for granted that we can dream. I mean, we, we don't realize, I mean, we learned so much about our own culture uh, in doing the project because we don't realize that our behavior, our, you know, our work is built on a foundation 
a foundation that people gave their lives to build. They kind of laid these foundations for us so that we have a culture of justice, a culture of education, you know, a culture of entrepreneurship, a culture of dreaming. We we take for granted that you have a, you have visions of the future, but you don't have visions of the future in a 36-year civil war. It's much harder to imagine that. They would like our help in kind of in changing that. And um, when we went to the when we went to Guatemala, um, the first day there, they took me to meet the vice president. And they said, "This is Bruce, and he's going to redesign Guatemala." And I said. I said, wait a second, absolutely not. I mean, I, you know, I'm like, I'm not going to do that. You're going to do that. You're the ones who are going to do it. I can help you and I can contribute to that. I can, I've got lots of tools and I can, I can advance and accelerate your work. But ultimately, the only people who are going to do that are Guatemalans. And uh, if anyone else, you know, offers to do it for you, you should run away from them. And they said, well, we want you to change the name of the country then. <laughs> and I thought, Wow, you guys are really big thinkers. Well, you know, why do you want to do that? And they explained that you know they said uh, the place was called Guate by the local indigenous people, and when the Spanish got here, they hated it, so they called it Guatemala. You know, bad Guate. And they said, you know, how would you like to wake up in United States a bad place every day? And I said, you really got a point. So we added an extra A in our process, and I, I can't remember how you know, when or how it happened exactly. But somehow we had an extra A and we created Guateamala, which is the love of Guate, and really created it as a movement. The idea was to kind of design a social movement and build what we call the culture of life. You know, we said, look, you've had 36 years of the culture of death. You can't just turn on the culture of life. You can't just say, okay, everybody put down the guns. Now we're good. It doesn't work like that. You actually have to build the foundations that have been destroyed or or never existed. Um, and so we worked with them to identify the nine cultures of life, uh, which included you know, a culture of dreaming. And then they did this incredible project uh, throughout Guatemala. It started in Guatemala City. And it was all about putting those messages, putting that idea of the love of Guate into the city and into the culture, into the media. It was all about this kind of very, uh, very smart messaging uh, that was really everywhere. What we realized, you know, strategically, part of our work was to say, look, you don't have to actually do it. We just have to celebrate it because thousands of organizations are already doing it. Uh, they're just invisible. You don't, you don't see them. They don't see one another. Uh, and people don't believe it's happening. And so they behave as if that's not true. Um, when in fact, there, I mean, we met literally thousands of organizations who are working on a better future for Guatemala. And so our work really was to say, let's feature them, let's support them, let's celebrate them, and let people really understand what their, their own people are doing. It was one of the best things I've ever been involved in, I think. It's one of my favorite uh, projects of all time. I'm sure it must be very honorable to be working in such a project like that. And you, you touched in very, I think you touched in very interesting things when you were describing the Guatemala project. And I wanted to try to explore this a little bit more. So you were talking first, the danger, the danger of not having a population or a whole society that cannot dream, 
right? Not a danger, but maybe the sad part, the tragedy about it. I see this happening a lot nowadays, right? When people cannot dream about it, when they cannot think about the possibility of possibility, about alternatives, about opportunities, they end up replicating what already exists. And probably this solution that already exists is an old solution that is not the best solution for society, right, in a way. So I think that these, the work of design that you were doing there, in a grand sense of design, of actually bringing the mindset of design for a whole population to think, hey, we can redesign it. We can create new meanings for Guatemala and we can create a different future for Guatemala per se, right? So I thought this was very interesting in a point. And another thing that you said right from the beginning that you said, look, you said to, the, to, to them, I'm not going to redesign Guatemala. You are going to be doing that. I think that this is a very big mindset shift because before designers were seen or liked to be seen as heroes, right? That they would come there and solve the world's uh, toughest problems. And of course we like that, but I guess it's very different what you did and you were celebrating the other initiatives that already existed. So it was much more collaborative and you were not saying, I have all the answers, the answers are here. Let's work and systematize them in a way. Mm -hmm. Am I right? What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. And that was really the strategy to say, look, yeah, I, I explained to them, you know, I've got my own problems, you know, like, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna go home, at, you know, I'm gonna, I'm here for a few weeks, I'm gonna go home, and I, you know, and you will be left here, and your, this is your problem, your country, your culture, um, and your challenges, and so, you know, I can contribute, I can help you, but, but ultimately, um, it's your project. They're incredible people, the people we worked with. And it's an incredible place and a really beautiful culture. And one of the things that we talked about early on was part of the strategy was to connect the world to Guatemala. They thought when I said that, that I meant people were going to come to Guatemala and solve their problems. And I said, no, 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 you're going to solve other people's problems. The things that you're going to do here will be important to the rest of the world. When the new modern wing opened, uh, the new modern wing of the the Art Institute of Chicago opened. They included uh, a display of uh, 12 posters that we had done together for Guatemala, for Guatemala. And they all came up for the opening of the show. And I've never seen, I've never had more fun in the museum. I mean, they, they were, they were so excited to see their vision of Guatemala in Chicago to realize you know, exactly what I told them could happen, that, that their ideas could, could expand to the world. And in fact, they did have a lot of impact in the region. You know, outside of Guatemala, the, the Amala movement uh, had a lot of impact in the, in the kind of neighboring countries. That is such a beautiful project. I loved it. It was one of my favorites from, from the book. Um, I had I started the conversation talking about designing the new norm, and then we. And this is one of your chapters that is more um, a bit more in front of the book. And then we talked about Guatemala, but I wanted to go back and talk about your first chapter, right? That is design leadership, basically. So it's first inspired design is leadership lead by design. In this chapter, I was really wild with what you were saying. A few things that you were saying is you say, look. 
as designers, we don't have the authority to force change. Nonetheless, we have the power to inspire it. And I think that was exactly what you were doing with Guatemala. What do you think um, now during everything that is, I mean, during this period of time of designing new norms, of designing new ways of working, new ways of living, what do you think that is the role of designers nowadays? I think it changed a lot since the beginning of our profession. Even about, if you compare about 20 years ago, it changed a lot. What do you think that is this new role of designers nowadays? I did a lecture for the Cooper Hewitt Museum, the National Design Museum in New York. They asked me to look at their collection. And when I looked through the collection, I tried to think, what is the common denominator? All these you know, super varied disparate objects and products and systems. And I mean, it's, um, it's very, very diverse. And what I realized was that the common denominator is caring. You begin by caring about the user, you know, the individual citizen that you are designing for. You know, we think about the, the person who is using the product, the, the target audience. There's lots of ways that we define that person. And we care about their experience. The difference between the objects in the museum and other things those people care more. They, they're very caring about their experience and they really care about the citizen and, and their experience with the, with the thing that they're making. And once you start to care about the person, you can't not care about their community or context. If you, you can't have a healthy, vibrant individual in a toxic community. And by extension, you can't have a healthy community in a toxic ecology. And so what you realize is that, when I realized that, I thought what's really happening is that designers are extending the impulse of design, the basic function to care about that individual, that citizen, their experience, and extending that out to a kind of greater and greater uh, extent. And I think now, as designers, we have a new kind of responsibility because our power to change the world has, is ever expanding. You know, some people call this the Anthropocene, you know, the geological age where humans shape the earth. That's what we're capable of. We can, you know, we can make that kind of change. With that comes a new kind of responsibility to really understand human and ecological impact of what we're doing. And I think that is... That is fundamentally changing the remit, you know, the kind of charter of what a designer is and does. You know, with this new responsibility, you realize that you actually have a method of leadership. Because what you're really doing is you're envisioning a future and systematically executing the vision. So if you think about design as a leadership methodology, there's very little leadership method. There's a lot of good advice about leadership, but design is actually a leadership method where we have the ability to envision something and create a vision, you know, something that is a visualization of the future. And you have to acknowledge that every designer is producing a future, even the worst one, you know, the worst kind of most banal designer doing something that's going to be produced. They're, they're creating a future, whether it's inspiring or not. And so once you say, look, I'm actually creating the future, 
then the question is, you know, how do I make that more intelligent? And how do I inspire other people to want to go there? And so that's why we put inspiration at the core. So instead of think instead of waiting for inspiration, you know, in hopes that you know we'll will inspire people, we say, look, our responsibility is to inspire. It's not a side effect. It's actually what we're here for. As you mentioned, we don't have we don't have control. We can't actually make people be more intelligent. We can't make them be sustainable, right? We can't make them behave better. But you can inspire them to behave better. And I think that's a much more powerful engine. Why I think you know that that's our principal responsibility. That's very interesting. You you said at the beginning about your piece that you did for the Cooper Hewitt Museum that you were trying to find a common denominator that was caring, right? I think it's interesting because, yeah. and then you were talking about design and let's say the scale of and responsibility of design that we have nowadays because we are we are having the power to interfere in things that we haven't been before, and people are thinking are looking more to design as an answer for leadership, as an answer for change. And one of the things that I have been thinking a lot is that the most, I think the most dangerous thing is when we are designing unintentionally, right? Because then we end up doing things that is not good for anyone, for society, for the business, for the organizations, for anyone. And I think this is usually when we come up with horrible solutions for our countries, for our business. Now that we are, if, if, we, if you look about this perspective that it's about caring, I thought it was interesting because if you are designing unintentionally, it means that you don't care, right? Because if design is about caring, it means that you care. So you need to intentionally create this movement for change. So I thought it was very interesting about this common denominator of, of care, basically. When you think about the history of design, the idea of defining the problem as a discrete entity, in other words, taking the problem pulling it out of context right, so that you could imagine a kind of a discrete thing that was the problem and then designing a discrete solution that locked onto the problem. It's that kind of one-to-one problem-solution equation was in some ways the holy grail of design. We said that's the best we can do. Right? We can define the problem and cut away anything that's complicating And then we're going to design a solution that is perfect for that problem. And I think that direction, that kind of um, ambition was fundamentally wrong because it imagined a discrete problem. The real problem is a complex ecology. So if you take the car, we said, I just want to go fast. What's the solution? We designed the car. We never imagined it as an ecology. We didn't imagine that we're going to make billions of cars, hundreds and hundreds of millions of them, and that it would reorganize the whole world around oil and and geopolitics. We never imagined the environmental impact of billions of cars. We just solved that discrete problem of how do I make a car? And I think today we're now going back and saying, hey, we have to design... Um, you know, the, the kind of look of the car is the least interesting. The most interesting is the ecosystem of matter and energy that provides this delightful utility. 
And we have to re rethink the whole thing. It's why, you know, when Elon Musk bought an, a solar tile company, in the markets, they were like, why is my car company on my roof? What are they doing on my roof? When you look at what he's doing, he's, he's thinking of an ecology of energy. He's thinking of the whole ecosystem of energy and trying to understand how do I make a new kind of design solution that is a system, not an object. And I think that's the biggest change in design culture that we have to grapple with. We have to start to think about the solutions that we create, create problems. And how do we mitigate those problems and really design it as a kind of ecosystem? Yeah, I think if, if we're thinking about designing ecosystems, it's clear that we cannot work as designers alone. There is no more hero designer. You need other people because you're working in an ecosystem. Um, and I think that what you were saying before, it's connected to one of your principles as well, that is always search for the worst, right? I think that you, ha you have to think about the, the worst that can happen with the solution um, because if not, you're going to be creating unintended consequences as always, right? Is there any example that you think that designers are not doing that right nowadays? They were not looking for the worst and things are evolving so fast and we're not looking for the worst, I don't know, as in terms of user technology or any kind of solution. What do you think? I mean, what we discovered really was uh, from a book by C.K. Prahalad. And Prahalad wrote an extraordinary book called The Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid. And in the book, he, he explains that almost all design and development is happening at the top of the pyramid. So almost all designers are serving the same billion people at right, the very top of the pyramid. And he said, if you go down to the, to the base of the pyramid, there's billions of people there, six billion of them. <laughs> and they all need the things that we're making. They all need the services and the beauty and the intelligence and the utility and the impact of great design. But almost no one is working at the base of the pyramid. And so if you go there and you, and you can solve problems and you can really solve problems at that scale with the cost constraints that it, that it carries, you typically revolutionize the rest of the world. You know, there's a uh, woman named uh, Rebecca Richards Cordham at Rice University. She is working on, uh, for instance, one of her projects was uh, to design, to basically put all the benefits, all the technological impact of a modern medical office into a backpack that was less than 100 pounds that could be taken off the grid. So she could deliver the quality of care of a modern New York medical office into any jungle in the world for uh, indigenous people or poor people anywhere. Um, she did things there. You know, she was working with a group out of Rice University, her program there, and she did things that are revolutionary because if you're going to take all that technology of a modern office and put it in a backpack, you have to innovate. And so they made things, they took uh, you know, a piece of equipment, if I recall correctly, that costs like $4,000 and made it for less than $100 and miniaturized it. So it's, it's super light, goes into the backpack, it doesn't use as much energy, 
and it produces the medical delivery of a $4,000 piece of equipment. And, you know, for less than 100 and she said it could be less than $10 if she manufactured it. And so when you, when you really go down to the base of the pyramid and try to figure out how to solve those problems, you, you solve things that, that can revolutionize the whole world, not just for poor people. You really can change how things work. Because who is going to buy that $4,000 piece of equipment if you can get the same results for $100 or for $10? And I think that whole concept of really thinking about the, our biggest challenges, that's where our biggest opportunities are. You're right. I think you also mentioned Aravind in your book, uh, the Aravind yeah. Foundation. And they are... I mean, they are amazing, basically. They redesign everything from the system of recovering vision, right? From the point that they are redesigning the actual lenses for a cataract, that they redesign everything to make it cheaper, like you were saying in this example as well, but also as they redesign the process, they redesign who, what they are, they were actually capacitating people locally, right, to bring and to be cheaper and to... Uh, sustain this business model. They redesigned the way how people paid for the, the operations. Whoever had more could pay more and maybe subsidize something else. I thought I think that this is one of the most systemic, uh, I think, changes in an operation that I've seen. And it's beautiful, basically. It's the impact is extraordinary. The typical eye surgeon produces 400 operations per year and an Aravin doctor does over 2,600. So, you know, over four times as many. You know, they, they design, like you say, they design absolutely everything. To be able to deliver the surgery for free to the poorest people in the world. And that's, to me, that's design. That's always search for the worst. Because the worst problems are the biggest opportunities for design. And, and I love it because when you were mentioning that, I was thinking, I'm sure that they never had the mindset, oh, this cannot be done. They were always like, yeah, we can do it. So it was cheaper, faster, and more effective, right? So it's all the things that usually whenever you're creating and redesigning something, you're going to have to let go on something, right? They didn't. They didn't let go on anything in their processes or in their product, in anything. And, and it's really, really beautiful project. And I think that being said, I just wanted to touch point on some, another, cha another chapter of your book that I really, I mean, this is one that made me more excited about. Um, actually, all of them, but this was like touching on something that was very interesting that you said, uh, the name of the chapter is Compete with Beauty, right? And you talk about beauty as a competitive idea because beauty moves us. And there are m multiple ways of analyzing beauty, of course. But since I was a kid, beauty made my humor change, for sure, um, for good or for bad. And I have been obsessing with beauty since then. Um, so I really love that chapter. The other day I was doing a, a yoga session, a sound yoga session. And it was very interesting. But my, I was having to do the arms and the ass. And I was like, that's not beautiful. Maybe I should be changing a little bit my tone to, to actually help with the whole group, right? And but that, that being said, I just wanted to see how do you... You gave many, many interesting uh, principles of how to compete with beauty. But how do you, as a designer yourself, how do you compete with beauty in your practice, in your everyday life? In the book, I outline 13 dimensions of beauty that anyone can learn. In other words, you know, there, there are a lot of ways of defining beauty. 
and a lot of different cultures of beauty and in different ways of thinking about it. Um, but the common denominator is that beauty is the highest form of human behavior, the highest form of human ambition. Um, so wherever, however we define it, um, it's about that kind of uh, greatness. Um, and so, you know, I've always been obsessed with order and beauty. You know, and I, I apply it to everything that I do. You know, I kind of can't help myself. I just, you know, it's the way that I live and think. And so I think of it as a, as a part of the way that I live and work. But I realized that, you know, in design education, there is almost no discussion of beauty. I mean, if you walked into an architecture school today in America and you put up a project and you said, I did it because it's beautiful, you would get an F. <laughs> you're fired uh, and 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 i realized how, how weird you're right <laughs> you will be like no you is. didn't understand anything about design or architecture go away <laughs> yeah um and i think it's just really weird that I, i think one of the great tragedies of our culture is that we've conflated critical and negative so in other words to be taken seriously and you have to you know we talk about challenging and being critical of. I think the most challenging critical thing you can do, something smarter and better. The most beautiful thing you can do is a new way of living that is really a new contribution to the world. And that notion that, that it must be negative to be serious is for me, you know, just absolutely anathema. And You know, I like to say that I'm allergic to cynicism. I kill it whenever I see it. <laughs> I just, I cannot tolerate it because we have no hope of solving the problems that we have if we start from a cynical place. We need to start from optimism. When you were saying about cynical, I think it's, it's very hard to deal with it as well because there are so, so many mixed signals, right? When you're talking with a, uh, someone who is cynical, that it's impossible. There is no... There is no way out, right? Because there is always like a door that is actually a wall that you can, there is no way. So there is, how are you going to solve it? You're right. It's like impossible to deal with it. You're right. You're stuck in that place and you cannot change if you are like that, if you have this mindset. Our responsibility is to be optimistic. It's our job. You know, other people can be cynical and other people can, you know, throw stones and protest. I understand that throwing stones and protesting are part of an ecology of change. But in the end, you have to design a new way of living. You have to design a solution. Uh, that can only come when we regain our optimistic perspective and imagine a better future. Um, and no amount of complaining uh, or cynicism is going to help us. That's not, that's not who we are. This leads me to my, one of my, I have two more questions. Um, And I think that this leads me to the platform. One of your chapters is about designing a platform uh, for constant design, right? I think it's connected to this vision of opportunity of a desirable future. You say in the opening of this chapter that the real design is the meta design of a platform for continuous design development. What do you mean by this platform for constant design? Is this something that would be iterative forever. Um, how do you see that? Well, you know, I've had the weird experience 
of being called to redesign things that I design. Oh, wow. Mostly, mostly I get called to design, to redesign things that someone else designed because they did it 20 years ago and it's time to change. You know, I realized that almost always the people in the room, you know, the last folks really weren't that smart. <laughs> we're so much smarter this time. Uh, and we're going to do it right. This time, this is it. This is where we're going to get it. Uh, and, you, you know, you realize when, if you did the thing 20 years ago <laughs> or 10 years ago. You're like, oh, maybe time, I was not smart. <laughs> wait a second. We were pretty smart back then. Uh, <laughs> have a false notion. It's about a kind of singular, perfect thing. Right? And so we're always kind of searching for that timeless you know, spectacular, singular thing, when in fact, the world is changing so dramatically, the idea that your solution is going to stand for, a, you know, a thousand years is just not plausible. What you should be doing instead is acknowledging, oh, we're in a time of change, of constant change. We will be iterating this design, no matter how smart it is, because the world around us is going to dramatically change. A 21st century is like living through 60,000 years of human progress. <laughs> so that's what it feels like. The idea that you're going to get it right forever, uh, it's really not plausible. Instead, what you should be doing is designing a method so that sustain the equity that you create. So when you solve a problem, you're creating equity. If you solve it in a way that it can be solved and resolved and resolved, and it can get smarter and more beautiful and more intelligent over time, you capture that equity and you build the equity. Instead of trashing it every five years, every instead you're saying, I'm gonna build on the, the kind of platform that I created. I'm, you know, I'm gonna allow a process, not myself, a process that other people can, can add to this and evolve it and change it and make it current, but not throw away what was originally created. Mm. So it is a very different um, thinking about the design. You know, it changes what the problem is from that kind of perfect singular thing to a sequential thing. That's very interesting. It's like it's, and then it becomes ever iterative as well, but not destroying what it was done before necessarily. Of course, that if there is any challenge, You'd have to redesign that. It's almost like Lego, right? That you can, you would be building, the first would be building the blocks and then you will be, okay, let me create something with these blocks. And then you create a house, you can create a tree, you can create, and then you can keep iterating depending on the mm -hmm. time and on the needs and the, con the context of the time that you're living in and wherever you are. That's very, yeah, I mean, that's very interesting. I mean, Lego is, is a beautiful platform. The world over, people love. I agree with you. It's one of the most interesting, and we all, even the adults like to play. So it's really nice. It's for everyone, basically. If I think that's our final final moments, uh, it's been, of course, a great, great. Uh, have been learning a lot with this talk, um, but I wanted to learn one more thing from you, and maybe for you to let our audience know what do you think. What could, do you think would be the future of design for those who are listening to us, and what they should be focusing their energy and their design, uh, let's say, power nowadays? What do you think that they should be doing? 
Well, we are really committed to what we call life-centered design. And that really came from my work at the McEwen School, architecture school in Northern Canada in the town where I grew up, the McEwen School of Architecture. And it's a tri-cultural project with French, English, and Indigenous leaders. And I'm on the board of the school, and I've been going up there a couple times a year to work with them. And I've learned about the Indigenous cosmology, which is very different from my own, very different from Western culture, because they don't put humans at the center. They put life at the center. Uh, And they come to life, they honor life, along with all, all the other life forms. And when you do that, it so fundamentally changes how you work and what you do and what your objectives are and what your goals are, because you privilege the welfare of all of life as a practical objective. In other words, our responsibility as designers is not to sustain human life and make human life better. Uh, Of course, we have to do that to succeed, but in doing that, we have to make all of life better. We have to really design for the welfare of all of life in order to sustain human life. And so we have an obligation and a responsibility to really go to a higher order of complexity and really understand, you know, what does it mean when I make these decisions, when I do this kind of work, when I make that kind of material? What are the implications long-term? You know, what if billions of people did this? What if billions of people bought this product? And that's really the, the challenge that we have. It takes us to an entirely different mode that we call life-centered design. That's excellent. So I think that's a great way of, of ending talking about life-centered design. I remember that you also mentioned in the book about you were giving, I think, a, a talk in a school. One of the kids said, uh, so you were talking about, I think, human-centered design. And then, and then I think one of the kids said, what about the other animals? Is that it? How, how, yeah, is that? Well, it actually was um, about 15 years ago, I did a project called Massive Change. Project really was inspired by a quotation from a man named Arnold Toynbee. And Toynbee was a British historian who wrote a 20-volume history of the world. And he was quoted uh, by Lester B. Pearson, who's a former prime minister of Canada, who won the Nobel Prize for inventing peacekeeping. And in 1957, he, he got his Nobel and he gave an extraordinary lecture. And in the lecture, he quotes Arnold Toynbee, who says that in the long sweep of history, the 20th century won't be remembered as an era of violence and conflict or technology and innovation. That big themes will not be our, our long-term legacy. Instead, it will be remembered as an era in which, and this was the quotation, we dare to imagine the welfare of the entire human race as a practical objective. And when I read that, I thought, wow, that's the biggest idea I've ever heard. That's like, that I believe is why I'm working. I, you know, I'm committed to that. I wouldn't have expressed it in the way that, you know, in the kind of, and most designers wouldn't think in that kind of grand way. You know, we're all doing our part. We're working on our problems and projects and trying to uh, think of the welfare of the entire human race as a practical objective and kind of add our bit to that. And so I, after the show opened in Vancouver, I went to a high school a young, yeah, I made a presentation. I talked about Toynbee and that quotation. 
and how I had spent, you know, we'd, we had spent 20 person years of research trying to understand whether he was right or not. And we realized, you know, not only is he right, but he is so radically right that it's really amazing we don't believe it. We don't think that that's our legacy. That's our real project. And a young woman came to the microphone and she said, Mr. Mao, I think you're not thinking big enough. Like that's pretty big, you know, first of all, not too many people accuse me of that. Uh, But that's really big. It's the biggest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) And you know, the welfare of the whole, whole human race. And she said, take out the whole human race and put in all of life. That's our problem for the 21st century. And I was just blown away. I was like, wow, what kind of high school? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, how are you thinking like this? And she was absolutely right. She was absolutely right. We had a blind spot because because we were thinking about humans at the center. So we thought that is the biggest problem. It's not. Life doesn't care about us. When we're gone, based on our behavior so far, there'll probably be a round of applause (laughs) as we depart. Uh, And if we want to change that, we're going to have to think differently and work differently and live differently. And life-centered design is really the way to do that. Well, thank you so much, Bruce. That was an amazing talk. I'm sure we all have been, I have been learning a lot. And I think life-centered design, it is the way uh, forward for us as designers, but as a whole society, to be honest, because design cannot be left only for design. I think we are all (laughs) designers in a way. So I think that's really, really important. Thank you so much for being part of Desired. Thank thank you for having me. Speaking with Bruce was such an honor for me and left me thinking about how the principles outlined his book could not come at a better time for humanity. Things feel so uncertain nowadays, and there are challenges ahead. But as Bruce said, I am allergic to cynicism. I kill it whenever I see it. (laughs) I just, I cannot tolerate it because we have no hope of solving the problems that we have if we start from a cynical place. We need to start from optimism. Thank you for listening to us and join us next month as we uncover new ways to design desirable futures for us all not just some of us.